0: Good evening to you, Ellie, and thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you. You're welcome.
0: Great stuff. So, I mean, look, we've we've had a bit of a conversation around uh, HIV. Um, and, and you know, obviously, I, I do remember uh, days as a student uh, in the early 2000s and then obviously leaving high school in the late 90s. Uh, that there was obviously that we had a massive, massive issue with, uh, with the transmission of HIV. At the time, it seemed to be a death sentence because there was no access to, um, uh, to antiretrovirals. But of course, we know now, many years later, South Africa uh, is able to boast the world's largest um, ARV uh, pro- program, um, and that we've also seen massive, massive uh, improvements in this particular space. But apart from those aspects, apart from that issue... Uh, I guess the, the key point is, if we look at this Ishawe project, that gives us best practice in this instance, is it not so?
1: Indeed, yes, that's what we, we, we have achieved. Um, so the goal of an HIV project and the goal of the UNAIDS 90-90-90, um, mm. um, so that means 90% of the people who have HIV are aware of their status, And of those, 90% are in treatment, and Mm. of those, 90% are virally suppressed. So they have no detectable viral load. Um, And that is the the UNAIDS goal by 2020, and that is what we have achieved here with, with 90, 94, 95. So we have 94% of the people that know their status are on, HIV or are on ARDs, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and of those, 95% are virally suppressed.
0: I mean, that for me is just absolutely stunning, to be quite honest, in terms of the, the the numbers that you're sporting there or that you are able to talk about, because obviously we know that that's uh, one of the biggest concerns that we have at the moment is the uh, fact that people, um, you know, that, that in South Africa we have this massive treatment uh, campaign uh, that the state provides, It's in fact, the world's largest. But the biggest problem that we're still seeing persisting is the fact that, despite this, uh, you know these wonderful inroads that have been made uh, in the treatment of, of, of HIV, we still see an extremely high transmission rate. So I take it that the project in Ishowe in Ishowe has been all encompassing. It has been comprehensive. Um, it was meant to try to deal with transmission as well as with treatment. Am I correct?
1: Yes, that's right. Yes. So what so, we've so done, how d- if we, we have done it alone. We've done it um, together with the Department of Health and sure. the community around the Shaoim and Bongawani.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So completely working across the, the whole cascade of care for HIV. So that's all the way from prevention programs um, all the way through to treatment programs and ensuring that people are virally suppressed. So it's it's tackling every step of the cascade at every at every component and working... With the community, so we started. Um, one of the one of the main successes of the program is in the rolling out of testing
2: mm. and
1: ensuring that testing was taken out into the communities
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and ensuring easy access for testing for everybody and tackling tackling the huge problem of stigma and just making it more normal that people would test for HIV. So we worked very closely with the communities, with the traditional leaders, with traditional health practitioners, with leaders of the community from from every step, with the leaders of the youth and the leaders of the women and the men, um, and we have taken the testing and pushed it out into the community, not just at the health facilities. So we. We had a program, Community Health Agents Program,
2: uh-huh.
1: which was going out into the community, door to door throughout the community, taking a testing program to people's houses for providing HIV counseling and testing, TB screening, STI screening, pregnancy testing, and health education, um, recruitment for male medical circumcision, and just providing that ease of access in people's houses wherever they want it. Also, uh, with testing sites throughout the community, so some fixed sites in town, um, a mobile van that would go to events like sporting events and churches and fairs and schools. We have a huge schools-based HIV counselling and testing program. Mm. they're really pushing pushing the testing out into the community because that's the first step, yeah well, apart from prevention programs, the first step is ensuring that people know their status and uh, become you know that testing becomes normal in fact. And so that that has been enormously successful. and um, so that has led then to subsequently people linking into treatment. And we've also taken treatment out into the communities, we've taken treatment, not just in the um, primary health care facilities,
2: mm-hmm. but in
1: other places where where people may not necessarily access care. So we had um, we had a a testing site in the local TVET college, and that then turned into a small clinic which was linked to a primary health care facility that mm, took mm. The, the testing and the treatment closer to the students who were in the who are in the college and the same with men so we also have a male specific site in the taxi rank in the chowki so we we did a survey to because men are a very difficult crowd actually men
2: yeah.
1: are the, mo- the one of the biggest challenges and so we did a survey to find out why it is that men are not accessing care um and we've then taken that and turned that into a male specific clinic which is in the taxi rank in Ishawi. So, so I mean there's, the a, taxi rank.
0: there's there's a couple of things that I'd like to if if we can break them up into chunks because there's quite a bit that you mm-hmm. gave us and, and because that's,
1: it's huge it's, it's massive and
0: uh, of course of course yeah. and, and and I think that's what's yeah. uh, what's what's uh, part of the su- yeah. success in this instance and for me I'm I'm really deeply intrigued by you know how you've managed to achieve this and how then if possible, whether it's MSF uh, in, in partnership, of course, with um, uh, the Department of Health and, and all the other players that have a role to play in this instance, how do we then get together, for lack of a better term, and and, and work uh, through this, this morris of, of issues that we still continue to experience in South Africa around HIV transmission? And the first thing that you highlighted, of course, was the attitudes of people because it's one thing to test. It's another thing for people to be willing to be tested because we know that HIV has stigma attached to it. We know that HIV um, is, is a scary proposition for many people. And uh, based on a couple or, or, or at least one call that I received, um, you know, prior to this in the open line of the show, when I mentioned that we're talking about HIV, unfortunately, I fear that there's still a lot of ignorance around HIV who are most likely to be people uh, to be uh, vulnerable to HIV as an example, and of course how it impacts on, on, on and what, co- what causes um, uh, the, the mass pandemic that we've seen in the past and I think to some extent we're still seeing. So how do we then first of all get over the attitudes, those difficult men that you had described? Because I do find that that would probably be the most difficult crowd to deal with. A, you're talking about circumcising people that maybe traditionally don't circumcise, and B... Um, also then being able to have those conversations with them around sexual health, when some of them feel that I'm married to a, a particular woman, or I'm, in a, uh, in, you know, I'm supposedly a, in a committed relationship with this person, and um, condoms could be anything from a, a sign of the fact that we don't trust each other, uh, all the way through to having to test for HIV might be problematic. How do we then deal with those innate attitudes?
1: It is one of the biggest challenges, and that is, it's a big, it's a tough question to ask because HIV is all about sex, and normally we don't talk about sex, Mm. even with our partners. We're Mm. not, you know, we're not terribly open about um, our sexual health. But one of the things that we have done to try to overcome this is to... um, about a sexual reproductive health program in the high schools, um, we have. So we, we go. We have a program in 38 high schools in the region, so it's accessing about 17,000 learners. Um, we go to the school. We talk about sexual reproductive health first. So each, with each class in the life orientation classes,
2: mm. so the
1: the the, the curriculum the lessons are all Department of Education approved. And we go in and we discuss um, sexual reproductive health in a way that talks to the students. Not not in a way, you know, not in a condescending fashion or in a way that, you know, they might find it difficult to understand, but really mm. in a way that, that they listen to what is being heard. And then we've been conducting HIV counselling and testing in the schools following the sexual reproductive health education. So in a way, normalising it, that these children, our goal there hopefully, is that these children will leave school thinking that it's normal to test for HIV once or twice a year or after they've had a risky sexual encounter. Um, That is hopefully what will work for the next generation and then as generations go on, it will just become a more normal way of life, that people will um, understand what it, what the disease is and test regularly for it and understand their sexual reproductive health. Um, with the communities that sort have of already left school, yeah. to, to talk about it um, at all different levels of society, it's really bringing the conversation out into the open. And um, so for us to talk with our children about HIV and the risks it entails and to normalise the fact that we should be using condoms. Um, Mm -hmm. This is the way going forward. We've also in the schools been promoting, as you mentioned, um, male medical circumcision. Mm. if, If a boy is circumcised or a man is circumcised, the chances of contracting HIV or any sexually transmitted infection reduce by 60%. Mm, so it's mm. one of the single best methods to reduce the transmission mm, mm. Um, of new infections. Um, so male medical circumcision plus condoms. So we have also been going into the schools and recruiting boys. The same, you know, another another lesson on sexual reproductive health and on circumcision. And what's happened here in Kwazulu Natal is that um, circumcision was not common anymore. It had been some centuries ago, but it had stopped. And um, the king and the prince got behind the campaign for circumcision, huh. and so it has rolled out across the province, and it's been an enormous success. We uh, One of the results of our survey was that for the boys aged 15 to 19, we have a 72% um, rate of circumcision amongst the boys that age.
2: Mm,
1: mm. And, um, so we've actually been recruiting boys from 12 upwards at school and and that's been an enormous success, but it's it, that is certainly something that we've not done alone. Um, that's been done together with the Department of Health and it's really been a push from the Department of Health to increase the rates of me- male medical circumcision um, and that's been a huge success. Um
0: and, and, and for me, that, that's absolutely phenomenal. Now, the one thing that I find, uh, Ellie, and, and maybe this is also uh, another starting point for me, is that uh, going back to the conversation that I heard earlier on or had earlier on, and of course, um, a couple of other incidents that I've personally come across, whether it be here or other platforms, is of course my concern around the fact that I think a lot of myths and, and misunderstandings persist around HIV. Now, this is not obviously... Uh, an indictment against government or an indictment against any particular organization in this instance per se. But what my concern, though, is, is that is there still a possibility that we get it wrong in terms of our messaging and educational programs when we do talk about HIV and the transmission of HIV? Because I know that there was a point um, in our history where obviously, as I said, where, where HIV was still regarded and seen, as as a death sentence, that you know, we had uh, civil society organisations and even government to a limited extent, uh, placing a lot of effort around awareness campaigns, um, and and preventative uh, campaigns around HIV. And and quite frankly, for someone that had worked in that particular space, someone that was actually part of, of those campaigns, the one thing that I notice now is that there's been a a, a certain and most definite decline. In the amount of messages that we see in that particular space. And I'm worried um, that we're not doing enough in terms of uh, uh, providing education and focusing on education around the transmission of HIV.
1: I think we can, I think you're right. I think we can never do enough. I think um, communication campaigns are essential. And it's essential that um, the message about prevention. Gets out into the community. One of the one of the dangers that I see in prevention campaigns is often that abstinence is is promoted, um, and it's, it's it's a bit unrealistic, isn't it? I mean, it, it's idealistic, but it's unrealistic to promote abstinence.
2: Mm.
1: No,
0: exactly. And and that for me was the young
1: population. I mean, uh, you know. Mm. Uh, that that's what that's what everybody does. We, we all want to have sex. We all want to enjoy it. We shouldn't be afraid of it. Um, we should just understand the dangers. And simply using a condom will prevent most of it. The problem is that it becomes an underground thing, and it becomes that people don't don't speak about it or don't ask questions, and they're afraid to ask their parents. It's they're afraid to ask their parents, so they ask somebody else, and then the messages get twisted. Um,
2: Mm. Uh,
1: it, it, but sex is a difficult topic it's a difficult topic for most people It's, I mean how many how many of us well unlike my children who are absolutely sick of me talking about sex <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it's how a, many people talk to their children about sex how many people talk to their grandchildren about sex
2: yeah,
0: so, no no I, um, I hear you
1: look it's,
2: it's mm, a, it's a
0: fundamentally important issue coming. that you're raising because uh, I, I, I mm. do think that there's a serious problem um and I always say that as South Africans, we tend to, um, you know, we, we're extremely conservative about sex and sexuality, generally speaking, and we don't talk about it openly at all. Uh, however, you know, our sexual behavior, unfortunately, doesn't suggest that at all. Um, and, and all too often, we might not speak about it, and we might not uh, be open about our sex, you know, our our very liberal sex, uh, sex lives, but... Um, you know, we're very conservative about it on that speech level and talking about it. It's impolite. It's uncomfortable. It's whatever. But in secret, we we're getting freaky and we're getting freaky regularly and unsafely at that as well. So we need to so- so- somehow bridge the gap between our very liberal uh, sexual activity and and being liberal about talking about um, uh, what we get up to when it comes to sex. So that
1: is. It- Something that we have tried to address here in Ashalian and Bongolani, mm. so by speaking by speaking to to the communities, and this is a very rural mm. area, mm. Um, really taking the message out out to the communities, having is in visits with um, traditional leaders, talking to traditional health practitioners, and trying to open the conversation, and particularly this um, the. Community health agents program, which was really going into people's houses, um, opening up the conversation. It certainly hasn't gone the whole way. There's still an enormous amount of work to do, but it has it has opened up the the conversation. Um, some particular successes that I could say that we've had is when. Um, you know, we've gone into somebody's house and then they've invited us back again and said, Can you come back, please, you know, after school when my children are home so that they can test? And can you give them this conversation? Can one of your counselors come and have the, you know, give this education, say, to my children or to the rest of my family? Mm. And this, um, slowly but surely, it's chipped away at the stigma. Mm-hmm. We don't have, we don't have, um statistic from stigma reduction, but definitely um, everybody across the spectrum of the community is saying, you know, it's opened up the conversation. Uh, and that, um,
0: but yes, I mean, based I, on your results, for me, it's, it's almost quite uh, clear uh, that you are finding yourself in that space whereby you're clearly um, having inroads because uh, as you had pointed out and as you had... Uh, you know set the scene there very well Uh, the fact is is that we are talking ultimately uh, about extremely rural communities right and uh, all too often that's where we find the highest levels of um, you know people being very conservative Uh, they're not willing to talk about these things ordinarily it's you know it's it's not a and then also then there's also all kinds of other things that you have to take into account gender age race probably, language, etc., cetera, et cetera. And if you are able to open up those conversations and people are actually inviting you back to return to their homes uh, in an effort to, say, test their children or to test uh, family members, then clearly there is some success in this particular space and that you're doing the right thing. Uh, that, for me, obviously uh, makes absolute sense. And, and that's why, um, mm. you know, that's that's the success of it all. I mean, you know, looking at the Ishawe project and obviously... Um, and, you know, this project in Ishawe is not done with the purpose of MSF uh, in, in KwaZulu-Natal in particular to uh, say that this is our domain and that we have managed to make these successes and everyone else needs to back off. I mean, the whole idea behind a project like this is to almost create a pilot to be able to go back to government, go back to government at all levels, mind you, whether it be provincial, local or, or national, and say, guys, this stuff actually works, but this is the model that we need to apply. Um, yes, and, and the key question then is: Is it a viable model to apply ultimately? Is it you know it's not one of those things that's a, a far off fantasy because um, it, it's just not probably going to work. Is it something that is actually viable and that can work um, at at scale or on a national level in particular?
1: That is the idea. So that in fact, I know that perhaps a lot of your listeners they may not realise that MSF Doctors Without Borders works in. Um, HIV programs. We're probably better known for our role in you know, in big emergencies and in countries at war. But our role here in HIV in not just in South Africa but in Southern Africa and across the world is to, is to test and trial new initiatives and then to ensure that they can in fact be replicable. So as you said, we don't want to create an island of excellence here that can't be copied by Mm, mm. Departments of Health and that rolled out at national level. So what we want to be able to do is to ensure that what we're doing is replicable and that it can be rolled out and it can be adapted um, at national level. So in fact, there's nothing really that we have done that we believe Mm. is successful that is not now government policy. There are some things that we trialled and tested here and in our project in the Western Cape that are now government policy. So for example, the national adherence guidelines. Really? That's um, so once people are once people are in treatment and they're regularly taking their drugs and their viral load is suppressed, then actually you're not ill. You're not you know, you're healthy. And you don't you know you don't need to go to the clinic every two months to queue up with everybody else because in fact there's nothing there's nothing wrong with you except that you have to take um, your ARTs every day. So, we have, together with the Department of Health, trialled and tested new initiatives to, to, um, to take the healthy people out of the community, and also to make it easier for people to access their medication.
2: Mm.
1: So, um, the national adherence guidelines have been worked together, and not just based on projects that we have done. um, And now we are working with the Department of Health in rolling out the National Adherence Guidelines. So that's, once somebody is taking their ARTs, they, instead of going to the clinic every two months, they could be enrolled in a club, which is um, a group of about 30 people, either meeting at the health facility or somewhere in the community, Mm. and collecting your drugs then every two months, or a community ART group, so that's a group of between six to 10 people, You know, perhaps you and your family, or you and your neighbours, or, you know, half a dozen friends. And one month, one person will go to collect the medication from the health facility, and the next month, the next person, the next month, the next person. And so, in fact, you probably only have to go to the clinic once every six months. Mm. And at that time, you get, you know, you get a clinical consultation and you get your bloods taken. Um, So that ranges from the clubs and the community ART groups through to community pick-up points, which could be at a pharmacy or could be somewhere at a specific point in a rural community somewhere where you just go and you pick up, you get a six-month prescription and you go and pick up your drugs every couple of months and then six months later you go back and get another prescription. Um, So that is now um, national policy. Um, Also now something that is national policy, which which is... very exciting actually, mm. um, is that the community health workers that work from the community, so with different names really in each province, in KwaZulu-Natal, they were previously community caregivers, Yeah. now called, almost nationally I think, called ward-based outreach teams,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: they are able to conduct HIV counselling and testing.
2: Mm.
1: And so these ward-based outreach teams, they're designed to go into people's houses
2: uh-huh.
1: and to not just for HIV but for um, vaccination campaigns, for TB screening, for, um, for palliative care and for everything that um, can be done at the house and really take health care out to the community. And it's now envisaged that these ward-based outreach teams will conduct HIV counselling and testing in people's houses. So we'll push this out into the community and hopefully open up the space for more conversation in people's houses about HIV.
0: Um, no, it sounds, it sounds really wonderful, and I think that's hmm. exactly what is needed. Um, uh, but, I mean, just going back to, uh, you know, this particular uh, approach that you have, and I was thinking about, uh, you know, the, these people all almost teaming up together and going out. Um, to get their medication, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that for me sounds absolutely stunning. Because one of the biggest problems that has, you know, kept on, uh, that, that people keep on making a reference to or going back to when discussing HIV and, and obviously the, the effective uh, treatment and prevention of HIV is obviously the other problem that we r- tend to run into. And this is this idea that um, there's stigma attached or people are concerned and that there's a high level of people. Uh, falling by the wayside and not continuing their treatment in this instance, Ellie And, and what they do is, is that they uh, would start on the ARVs, but then at some point drop off. And there's obviously a long litany of reasons for that, all the way from um, uh, the fact that you have, uh, you know, a severe and in, in, in serious, uh, especially at the beginning of ARV treatment, um, side effects, or at least that was the case. Um, And now also the fact that uh, there's stigma, some people are concerned about what cues they have to stand in at the clinic, et cetera, et cetera. So in other words, we have a high rate of people who drop off of medication when they're supposed to stay on it uh, for the rest of their lives. I mean, how do you then ensure that you have a success rate and that people make sure that they stay on their medication uh, and and, and don't drop off by the wayside as, as, as they go along?
1: Um, it, that's that's a big challenge, actually. That that's uh, it, it's a big challenge for anybody who's ever taken lifelong treatments. Um, somebody who's who's on hypertension drugs has high blood pressure, or for somebody who's diabetic, taking drugs every day is really a drag. It's really <laughs> you get frustrated, and you just sometimes get sick of it. So, um, what we what we want to do is to improve the initiation counselling when someone starts their ARVs, when someone learns that they're HIV positive. So good initiation counselling in the first place helps the person understand their disease and helps them understand why it's important to take the medication every day, day in and day out. Um, and then constant ongoing good counselling And good understanding with their clinician is important as well. But having said that, people do morph in and morph out of care because, you know, you go through different stages in your life or um, Mm. external things come along and you just go, okay. Or you get to the stage where you go, well, I'm fine now. I think I'm fine. I've Mm, been taking mm. this for years. I don't want to do it anymore. What you need then is um, the space to be able to come back and not feel... Criticised for having stopped, but yeah. that the clinicians understand that this is a journey that you're on, and it's a journey for your whole life. And if you stopped, then you stopped. But okay, now you're back, and you want to come back to care, and welcome back. Here you are, and this is what we do: we start all over again.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we are, our, our project in the Western Cape is um, is working on on such a program, and we are here as well, and in fact the Department of Health nationally, mm. um, what's called Welcome Back Services. So opening up the space and making it a welcoming environment. Um, a similar example to that would be a young girl who's pregnant. Mm. Often going to the health centre can be a trauma because the nurse might you know, lecture you on the fact that you're pregnant and you're young. And so, so the young girl's don't feel comfortable to go to the clinic so it's important to constantly reiterate with the clinicians that this you know that everybody goes through different stages and our job as clinicians and as healthcare workers and as lay counsellors is to to welcome everybody
0: i mean you're talking about the pregnancy you know at the stage of pregnancy and that's usually uh, not usually that's obviously after the deed i think a lot of the troubles uh, start for a lot of these young women uh, before that, even when they go, for example, to yes. these clinics and they ask uh, for uh, contraception or they ask for, for condoms, even um, yes. that, that that's already, you know, the preaching already starts. And that's what I'm also partly concerned by. I mean, how do you o- overcome that? Because obviously, as much as there is a partnership between yourself and the uh, Department of Health, you can't control, uh, you know, health workers, uh, nurses and, and, and doctors and whoever else uh, these young people might come across you can't control them and you can't tell them what messages to give and what messages not to give under those circumstances so how do you then ensure that um despite the possibility of coming across negativity in the clinic um that these people would be able to push through and, and still continue on their um uh, you know their health regimen in this instance i mean that would obviously be um in this instance the the priority um so one of
1: the one of the things that I think is, has worked very well and is very important is to supplement the uh, the primary health care facilities with lay counsellors. Mm. So that's um, community health workers or counsellors um, whose job is to support, support the people on their journey through the clinic, mm. um, to help them with any problems that they have one of the programs that we have, as I was saying, is the program in the schools uh. is um, to, in addition to providing sexual reproductive health education, the integrated schools health project that the Department of Health and the Department of Education have is to um, to bring services to the schools, including family planning. Um, we've been told repeatedly by the by the young girls that they don't, like to go to the clinic because it's not even perhaps the nurse that they're afraid of or they're nervous mm. of, it's that maybe their neighbour will see them going into the clinic or somebody's exactly, yeah. or their neighbour's neighbour or their auntie or somebody will see them going into the clinic and the news will come back to their mum and it will be why were you going to the clinic, what do you need to be doing there.
2: What are you so doing there? Yeah,
1: to provide these yeah to to provide these services in a safe space at the school is incredibly important. To enable, um, uh, facilitate the access to condoms is incredibly important, and not just condoms but all family planning um, methods. But to really um, ensure that condoms are a bit available everywhere, and particularly in schools, freely available in schools is important, and it's possible.
0: Um. Hmm. so i mean just out of interest i mean i'm, I'm, I'm listening to sort of the entire uh, value chain that you're talking about there and and obviously and i was just listening to Aubrey Masango on my way in and there was this issue about austerity measures having an impact on the department of health so in other words we're seeing a massive cutbacks in terms of the health spend in south africa and there's obviously a lot of concerns about that as well um, Ellie and I, I don't know how familiar you are with this. I mean, you know, working in in the civil society space, but in partnership with government, you are well aware that our government is under severe pressure to obviously contain costs as much as possible, and with that, inevitably, you 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 run in all kinds of you run into all kinds of challenges, et cetera, et cetera. But what for me stands out about this, though, is that um, in as much as there are challenges uh, that we are facing at the moment. Um, your model obviously has a financial model that it's based on. So, in other words, there is a certain amount of money that you need to run with to make this uh, project—you know—to for this project to be replicated, number one, and number two, for it to actually be successful. Um, and it might be very different from that of the Department of Health. Is that actually the case, where there is a significant difference between what you are doing and what the Department of Health is doing, and the cost factors there too? Because the last thing that we want to do is to have this wonderful, great uh, conversation about. Your successes and what you are able to achieve, uh, but government just simply can't afford to do it, to you know, to replicate it across the rest of the country.
1: That's true. That's true. Um, so, in fact, it, it's exactly it's exactly what the department wants to know. They want to know what we've done mm. and how we did it and how much did it cost. And as I said before, there's not there's there's really nothing that we are doing now that in fact is not government policy. Um, uh, community health workers, I think, are um, are an enormous resource that are often, well, overworked and underpaid, probably. Mm. But they they can they can assist the department with an enormous amount of work, and I think community health workers and lay counsellors are the um, what is the term I'm looking for. Um, they're, they're, they're not quite given the recognition of the work that they're doing mm, and yeah. they are working... And the in impact that, that they're having facilities. in
0: communities, right?
1: And the impact that they're having in communities, not just in communities but in facilities and with um, you know, facilitating the clubs or the community ART groups that I was talking about before. Also providing health education in the facilities and as a resource community health workers are an amazing resource and um, economically, not a not a very expensive one, which is a bit unfair, I suppose. Um, but they are the most economic method of getting um, health care out to the community. Um, mm, mm. And, and they are government policy. So, as I said, these ward-based outreach teams, um, we would like to see more lay... They uh, no counsellors, perhaps in the clinics, because hmm. then they can support the nurses in the clinics. Um.
0: And ultimately, what you are doing then is obviously you're using uh, the services of, of. I mean, are these people voluntary, or, or are they getting a stipend, a small stipend? But it's not this massive. It's not a nursing, or you know, a medical doctor's um, a salary that you're paying in this particular instance. That's what I'm immediately imagining in this instance.
1: They, they get a stipend. Um, the the amount paid is slightly different in each province.
2: Mm. Um,
1: and it's, uh, it's the equivalent of a, a stipend. And, but I would say a lot of community health workers are not just doing this for the income, but there's really an enormous number of community health workers who are doing this for their community. There's a lot of community health workers who've been doing this work the same role yeah. or a similar role for many, many years and um, are doing it for the benefit of their community.
0: Now, that, what always worries me about projects like these, I mean, as, as, as wonderful as it is, is that it, it, it takes one official, one, and especially now that we've sort of gone through this uh, transition, right? We have a new government in power or new administration in power, um of course we know that uh, dr William keyser is of course the new minister of health he has um a medical background he is a medical doctor himself so hopefully he picks up on on the great progress that has been made and we know of course with me saying that that there is al- also recognition and, and and understanding that um health is something that needs a lot of work and a lot of focus and a lot more can be done to improve the circumstances that persist at the moment but um, that also a lot of great work has been done, and a lot of ha- a lot has in fact been achieved. But now, Ali, at the same time, you know, we can't put aside the fact that this work needs to continue, um, and then that there's still a, a concerted effort that is required in this particular space. I mean, are you concerned um, about this c- a continuation, especially from uh, you know the support from the Department of Health? Because in as much as you have your own funding and you're running independently. Um, you do need the, the support ultimately of government uh, through the Department of Health to make sure that this whole system works.
1: Absolutely. But having just come from the South African AIDS Conference, there's there's clear uh, willingness and there's a, there's a clear willingness mm. to push to achieve these um, the UNAIDS targets by the Department of Health. So in order to achieve that, I think South Africa needs to get approximately another 1.5 million People on treatment across the country, and there's huge initiatives, and there's there's um, pressure from from national level and provincial level to achieve this, and to really um, push the testing out from the facilities. There's um, there's additional funding from from some of the big donors to help achieve this, and to try to get the people who have tested and linked straight into care. So there's enormous um, political willingness to achieve these UNAIDS um, targets of the 90% of people knowing their status
2: mm. and
1: subsequently 90% of people being in care. Um, South Africa has an enormous role to play in this because with the biggest cohort of people living with HIV, mm-hmm. And
2: what,
1: what works in South Africa can usually be rolled out and adapted to work across across the world. So, South Africa has a huge role to play within this, and the Department of Health and um, uh, the Department of Health acknowledges this. And I, I see the willingness there to push to achieve this. Mm. Um,
0: I mean, we can only hope. And, and uh, believe me, I'm one of those people that hopes that that we keep up pro- programs and projects like these, because I think all too often uh, we start off on an extremely high base and we do some excellent work. And unfortunately, at times, and and I'm not casting aspersions to anyone in particular here, so I don't want to be, uh, you know, the downer in this conversation, but unfortunately at some point you'll find someone new coming in um, and they say a new broom sweeps clean, but all too often a new broom might cause, uh, you know, further headaches by just simply wanting to revamp the whole system because they have the ultimate solution without necessarily consulting, without necessarily um, engaging with the partners at the table who have been doing some really great work and great strides. I mean, Ellie, just as a final issue that I want to take up with you is is that, I mean, congratulations to you and the team and what you have managed to achieve in Ishorware, especially under the circumstances that you're working under because I think that, um, you know, that there was probably, and maybe this is a, the, the first issue that I want to address with you in, in closure, is was Ishorware specifically chosen because I'm sure from the onset going in there, and then I de- de- detect a slight accent. I, w- I would, s- I would, guess. I would hazard a guess, an Australian <laughs> accent.
1: Yes, that's right. You would be hard pushed to find my accent. <laughs> <laughs> Australian. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. Yes. So,
0: I mean, being Australian, I mean, I mean, I'm sure when you when you entered uh, rural KwaZulu Natal, you found that it's a very different environment culturally, linguistically, um, attitudes and approaches that people might have. So so for MSF, uh, being an international organization with a massive footprint in South Africa, mind you, I'm sure it was a bit of a, uh, for lack of a better term, a culture shock. It, it, it was a whole new experience, a new way of thinking, new approach that was required. And you had to overcome all of that before obviously being able to to claim the successes that you have thus far.
1: Um, so, uh, myself, personally, before I came here to KwaZulu Natal, I was in Malawi in MSF's projects, mm, HIV mm. projects there for five years, and then Mozambique before that. So, I I wasn't, you know, fresh from Sydney to... Uh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, I uh, uh, yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but we did, in fact, so your original question, we did come to... We, it was a deliberate choice to come to, Shawi in Bongowani. Mm. So, we wanted to... We wanted MSF to embark on a project such as we have just achieved, to to work in an area that was both semi-urban and rural.
2: Mm-hmm. with a
1: high prevalence of HIV, and within South Africa, KwaZulu Natal has the highest prevalence. Mm. And within KwaZulu Natal, um, apart from Ethekweni, the area with the highest prevalence is indeed here. Um, King uh, Cetewayo District. So it was a deliberate choice to come here and a deliberate choice to come to the to the rural areas. We have a project in the Western Cape in Kailicha. So we have an HIV TB project in in a township in um, in the Western Cape, and we didn't want to replicate that. We wanted to um, to test and to trial all these new initiatives in a different area, really. Particularly, so that we could test it in both urban and rural. So it was a deliberate choice to come here, um, and yes, to come here and to start here to work in an area that was that was difficult. I mean, that is why we can do it. We have the ability to come to somewhere that is not easy, and to you know to test and to trial all these initiatives. So we're extremely proud that we've managed to do it together with the community of Ashawi. It's an enormous achievement. Um, and we certainly haven't. You know, we can't say that we MSF have done this alone. We've done it with the community,
2: Yeah. and we've yeah. done
1: it with the Department of Health. It's really been um, a partnership, and particularly um, with this broad-based community approach mm. that has that has been the key to bringing not you know not coming along and saying this is what we want to do for you, but this is what we would like to do together and
2: yeah, help yeah. us
1: how can we do this and learning the lessons from the community and taking their their advice and um you know taking always their advice for the next step
0: so early for yourselves i mean where to from here uh, what happens after this uh, because one could easily turn around and say listen we've achieved our goal our what our 90, 90, 90 target and we've exceeded it a year before we were expected to uh the funders are happy we are happy, government is happy, let's pack up our goodies and go, and then you know what, we'll come no. back in 10 years' time There's and There's still just an
1: see. enormous amount of work to do. There's still a huge mm. amount of work to do. Um, and um, we, uh, so our program is now transitioning a bit from an HIV, so the original premise was an HIV-TB program. Mm. But as is always the case, HIV becomes all-encompassing, and TB gets relegated to the corner so we've kicked ourselves and realised that, in fact, we've let TB be relegated to the corner and we have to bring it um, you know, front and centre. Yeah, sure. So we still have quite some HIV components of the project that will continue with some some specific operational research components of the project
2: sure.
1: of HIV that will continue. And we are working much more um, concertedly on TB in the community. So, with drug resistant TB and drug sensitive TB programs. for decentralizing drug resistant TB to the community and closer to the community, and also trying to catch all of the missing TB cases. And hopefully, in another couple of years, we'll be having the same conversation about TB.
0: <laughs> I hear you. And I mean, just as a, you know, and my concern is, and I've seen this happen quite often, and that is obviously. Uh, because of funding models uh, in this particular space. Um, also, the other issue that comes up immediately for me, Ellie, is the idea that um, this this particular problem in this particular community has been solved by far and large, so let's move on to TB. Now, I'm not saying that you're saying that, you know, let's just abandon this issue and move on to the next uh, great thing, but but isn't there that danger that too often happens is that, no, no, we've solved the HIV issue. We're really, really on top of it. Then we move on to the yeah, next right. best thing, and and... Um, that's where we sort of have a backlash or, or, or you know, a regression. Eventually, is is, is that yeah. not part of the concern as well?
1: It is a concern, and mm. it is a concern that it's a concern actually for MSF that some of the big donors are. Um, well, they haven't, but they're continuously talking about saying, "Well, the TB, the HIV mm. problem is solved, and so now we don't need to fund HIV." And so that is a big um, advocacy point for MSF that HIV is not solved, and we haven't we haven't got there yet. There's still a long way to go. And even if nationally and internationally we can reach the 90-90-90, that still leaves the tough ones, the really tough ones, the 101010, 10, 10, who are you know the hardest mm-hmm. ones to catch. So that's an, that's a huge workload still to do. So we are pushing at an international level to ensure that the donors don't pull back on their HIV funding. Ellie, uh, unfortunately, fund. as, as it is mm. in
0: radio, we're out of time. But listen, it was a, a, an enriching conversation. I'm really impressed, really well done. All the best to MSF, and thank, thank you so you much for sharing. Thank all you Thank you, and thanks. Okay, bye-bye. The there was uh, Ellie Ford, Karma. She's the MSF Project Coordinator of the Ishawe Project in KwaZulu-Natal.